Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 10th, 2020, and this is episode 2,687 of the Survival Podcast, and I will warn you, you'll probably get some background noise in today's show. Now, the good news is it's... Friday, 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 that's right, it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show, which is the favorite show of many of you guys of the week, we're going to hear from the Expert Council, so a lot of the show is pre-recorded, so you won't hear reciprocating saws and impact drivers and stuff like that. They are still putting in uh, new doors and windows in my home, it's something, one, you know, it's our project for this year, we do different projects to improve the home on an annual basis. We tend to do them about this time of year. We were supposed to have the majority of this work done the day after we got back from vacation. That's why I built an extra day in there. I thought that most of the work would be done before the show yesterday. And the best laid plans seldom uh, actually come to fruition. You, you, you know, no, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So you might get some background noise. I'll try to minimize it. I'll pause when I can, but only during my segments. So that's the good news. Anyway, what are we going to chat about today on the Expert Council Show? First up, I got a question from a listener. Is it now time to get out of the market? Back in, in 2008 when I started this show, within about a month of starting the show, I said in no uncertain terms, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. And then people told me I was crazy, and then some people actually did it. And some people wrote me uh, emails later on saying I talked my parents into getting out, and because of that, they can still retire. So is that time here? What does John Pugliano say about that? Um, how about the keto diet? I, I, I talk to people sometimes, oh, man, I, 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 I can't do keto. And I'm like, well, why? Well, I, I, I can't put weight on. I'm too skinny. God, if I lost more weight. And I always kind of think, you know, hey, it it doesn't work that way. If you want to put muscle on, I think keto's the way to go. And that's for both men and women. Now, I think, we, you know, if, if our hormones are right, men and women put on different types of muscle. But muscle is the key in many ways, to a healthy weight is having a significant amount of muscle mass on. And I think a lot of people who think that keto would be bad for them because they're already thin and slight of build would actually do better. And we're going to have Dr. Ken Berry talk about that today because someone has that exact question. I can tell you this. Since I started keto, people look at me and say, dude, you're hitting the weights. No, I'm not. No, I'm actually about to start a new workout regime. We're, among other things that we're doing in the home, we're actually setting up a home gym. And I'm going to kind of take that to another level. But, but if you've seen any of the pictures of me, where not only have I lost like a small person in weight, but if you've seen like pictures of me with like a short sleeve shirt on or whatever, and you look at the tone of the muscle, that's not from lifting weights. I've done some lightweight lifting here and there, but not enough to account for it at all. Uh, again, Dr. Barry will talk about that today. Now, what about your RV? If you want to live in an RV, especially if you want to live in it for seasons, 
Well, where you're going to live in it has a lot to do with what kind of RV you're going to get. Somebody that knows a little bit about that is Gary Collins. He's coming at this from the standpoint of someone built off-grid housing as well, where often when you decide you're going to build an off-grid home, due to the complications with financing and things, it's kind of a pay-go thing. So what people will do is get an RV and live in an RV on their property as they build their home. Uh, so he's going to come at it from that standpoint, which is a great way to come at it. And, and, and as you'll hear in my sub subject today, that there might be a lot of call for doing things like this in the near future. And, and, and fortunately and unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, where you're coming from with it. What about rebuilding a diesel motor from the ground up? I mean, we're talking about taking that thing down, maybe doing some reboring, what have you. Taking a motor that's uh, it's seen as better days. And it's time for it to be completely rebuilt. And how do we know if we're really at that point? Or are there some other things we can do without going that far? Derek Bonpietro, we'll talk about that today. Uh, we have Tim the Toolman Cook. He's got a, an update from a listener on expanded foam, a segment subject that he did before. And uh, I'm going to say on that one, I think these, these expert panel members love hearing from y'all. You don't always have to communicate with them through me. All of them have websites or other ways that you can communicate with them. You can always find out all the people on our expert council page uh, or on our expert council by going to their page, which is under About Us, and it's called Meet the Expert Council. Uh, all the council members are listed in every council episode in their website. So if you want to talk directly to them, don't think you're breaching any kind of protocol or anything. So Tim heard from a listener he had helped on this show, and that was really cool. But what I'm really jazzed about is that Tim is going to be, I think, Filling up my, my, my new T-Spaz items for me, the way this is going. He's got a pole saw from DeWalt uh, that is awesome. And the only reason I didn't just go buy one immediately, I have one that I'm sure is not as good, but it's good enough for what I do with it that I got from Black & Decker years ago, and I've made that a T-Spaz item. Um, if I find myself more in need of a pole saw, I'm going to buy this thing. And there's two options. He talks about the one in the link that he sent me is for one that he says is about 200 bucks. It's actually $149 as a bare tool. Uh, however, there is another, there's the same saw, exact same saw, uh, that comes with a battery and a charger, and that is uh, $214. And it comes with a 4-amp-hour battery. I'm going to explain the math behind why, unless you just don't want to spend the money right now, that the one that costs more is actually a better deal. Okay, And then I'm going to talk to you about something you're not going to like, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, shit is about to get real bad economically. Remember before I left, I said we're either going to have a, a recession, a really deep recession, or a depression. I think at this point, based on the decisions of our government, and I said that the, the decisions they make in the next 60 days will determine whether it's a recession or a depression. 60 days has not gone by yet. But like 30 has since I said that. We're like halfway into it. Uh, I think the best case scenario now is a deep protracted recession. No V-shaped recovery. I, I don't see it. I see a V-shaped recovery for some things. But for Main Street and for much of America and for Wall Street, this is going to be a really nasty, bumpy ride And I'm going to talk about it from three indicators or three particular market segments that are going to have a dramatic impact on it for you today. And those are going to be education, real estate, and retail. And as you guys know, I've been talking about this for a very long time. 
and I've been talking about flux. And I mean, I'm going back four or five years, so like 2015, 2016, and I was talking about this flux. And I said it's going to be between 2020 and 2030, that you had 10 years where all this stuff's going to play out. And people accused me of kind of hedging my bet there. You know, like saying, like, well, you know, if you're saying this in 2015, and you're, you're placing this flux between 2020 and 2030, that's 15 years, there's plenty of time in there for you to forget you ever said it and everybody else to do it too. Aren't you playing the game you accuse the people on the media of doing all the time? And I said, no, I'm just telling you this is what it looks like. Like, I'm not going to say it's going to happen faster or take longer. And then as this stuff with COVID's come out, as I've been trying to explain, COVID is killing the dying. And the flux or disruption, whatever you want to call it, is all about taking industries and market segments that you know are, are going to have to change. And in some cases, they change by a complete death and a rebirth of something completely new. And in some cases, they'll shift. So, so it, with real estate, you're talking about a shift where a lot of the big cities are going to die. And there was a lot of reasons for that. Well, COVID's accelerated all this, and I think you're going to see the majority of the shift that would have occurred over 10 years into to three now. And the 10 years of flux was going to hurt. Two to three years crammed it all together is going to hurt worse. And then here's what's even more uh, of an issue there. A lot of this flux was in some, way gonna, some ways going to be mitigated by advancements in technology. Well, that technology had 10 years to kind of soften the flux and incentivize the flux in the right direction. Well, now you're going to get all of that shit happening in two to three, and while the technology is kind of there, it ain't all the way there. So you're going to have to have technology that was going to, was going to support this thing over 10 years, support it in three And you're going to have to have people adapt to it in 2 to 3 versus 10. And that means everything's going to happen faster, and that means it's going to take longer for people to come back from it if they're not ready. I'm, you guys know me. I'm not an alarmist. I'm the one when all this COVID shit said, calm the F down. And I still think you need to calm down about the COVID itself. The mass hysteria response to this and the government's response to this, not just nationally but globally, has shown me that they want this to happen. That the people, and it's not the governments themselves. And I'll talk more about that when we get to it. And it's not conspiracy theory. And uh, it harkens me to one of my laws of life. Everything in the world is a cycle. If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, look at what happened yesterday. So history doesn't always repeat itself, but it, but it often rhymes. And it's rhyming. And it even rhymes right now, believe it or not, around World War I and what was known as the Divine Right of Kings, something that most history students have never even understood the real lesson of the Divine Right of Kings and the role it played in World War I and all the misery they brought us. We're going to talk about that today. But what else would you expect from a redneck hippie duck farmer? Before we do, let's start off with a quote of the day. I always feel weird when I do this, when I quote myself, especially when I make like a meme or a picture and put my own name on it. But there's times when that's what I want to talk about, and I find the thing that I've come up with in my crazy-ass mind quotable. 
And this really applies to everything that's going on with COVID right now, and it will tie into my segment when I get to it today. The distraction is only dangerous when it works. Jack Spirico. This actually came to me from a guy that was a martial arts instructor, black dude, really cool dude. I'd like to know more about him. All I've ever seen of him is this little snippet. And he's got a kid in front of him. The kid's, you know, is in his gi. And he's got like a foam noodle cut down to maybe about a two-foot piece so it mimics a club. So let me get this to you. Before you hear what he did with it, don't freak out. It's a foam pool noodle. Your kids beat each other with them all the time. But he's holding it like it's a club and the kid's standing in front of him. And it's clear to me that the kid's been instructed, when I try to hit you in the head with this, get out of the way. And he's going to go fairly quick. It's not like the drill I do where you go slow. That teaches a different lesson. Maybe we'll do that someday on video. So anyway, he uh, just flinches and the kid just freaks out. And he tells the kid, I didn't move yet. I haven't done anything yet, son. And he flinches and the kid moves again. And finally, he he does a few times and the kid reacts before anything actually is going to happen. And he very calmly talks to the kid and he says, you gotta you got to pay attention. This thing is a distraction. I'm the problem, not this. If I am not actually committed to what I'm doing yet, and you move first, then I abort and I come back and crack you in the head with it. Calm down. Then he takes it, says try again. He swings it at the kid's head. Fast. Kid ducks, gets out of the way. He swings it at him a bunch of times. He says, good job. He says to him again, remember, I'm your problem, not this. This is a distraction. This can't do anything that I don't make it do. You have to pay attention to me. And when I saw that, I said, this, 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 effing this. And I spelled the word effing out as the word that rhymes with truck. And I think a lot of people really liked it when I shared that, but I don't think people really got why I was sharing it. That lesson is not just about self-defense. That lesson is about life. And right now, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how deep in your toilet paper you are hiding, and no matter how many wet masks you are wearing that don't work, coronavirus is not the real problem. COVID is the distraction. That doesn't mean it's not a problem. It means it's not the big problem. It's not as dangerous to you personally as they've made you believe. And a lot of the people that are going to end up dying from it would have been dead within six months or less anyway. And the numbers say that is true. I know that sounds cold. I know that sounds heartless. But facts do not have feelings, friends. But I'm going to tell you that a global depression or even a global recession will be a, pro- a problem for far longer then we deal with coronavirus. I had somebody today talk about, well, even when, you know, if it seems like it goes away, if they had a vaccine, we got to use the vaccine because it might help some people. See, they're appealing to emotion. I said, we've had thousands of coronaviruses interact with humans in, in the modern era where we've scientifically even understood what a coronavirus is. There's thousands, as I talked about yesterday, have come and gone. Name one. Name one that didn't burn itself out in 18 months. And I got a big emotional soliloquy about why I was wrong. But you know what I didn't get? One coronavirus that didn't burn itself out in 18 months while interacting with human beings. And I'll tell you why.
far as I know anyway, and always correct me if I'm wrong, there isn't one. As I said yesterday, when the Rona comes to your town, and specifically if you are a major metropolitan area with a large number of people, sooner or later, in the next couple months, it will. It will be with you for about six weeks in earnest. And it will by the end of six weeks, it will be trailing off to nothing. And the reason I'm telling you that is not because I think I'm smarter than everybody. It's because I'm able to non-emotionally look at, well... When it went to Spain, what happened? When it went to Italy, what happened? When it went to the United Kingdom, what happened? When it hit New York City, what happened? When it hit every place where it actually got up steam, what happened? And the answer is, within about a week of peaking, you had a four- to six-week time period to where it trailed off to nothing. And that is true in places where they locked it down, like Italy, where they locked it down tighter than a monkey's butthole, And it's true of Sweden. Go look at the data. And what we need to do now, because we, we, we can give some forgiveness to people in February, March, April, when we didn't have the data. We can say it was new, it was scary, we didn't know. But when you have the data, which we now have, you look at the data, and unless you can find a place where that didn't happen, you stop pretending that it's not the way that it works. And I know what somebody's going to say, well, look at the United States. It's been going on. I covered it yesterday. The United States has 300 million people, a massive uh, array of regional, large metropolitan areas, and you have to look at each one the way you would look at a Germany, a France, or an Italy. Because we are not, we are, we are bigger than Europe. So you can't judge us versus one individual European nation. It doesn't make any sense to do so. The distraction is only dangerous when it works. And it's when I get to my segment today, you will hear it is working, and that makes it very, very dangerous. With that in mind, looking at all this economic turmoil that I say is coming, John Pugliano, is it time to get your money the hell out of the stock market? Hey, TSP, our question today comes from Tom in Florida, and Tom's question is, is it time to get out, get out, get out? Tom, that's a perfect, simple question. I like them when they're worded that way. Unfortunately, I don't have a simple answer for you. Well, actually, maybe I do have a simple answer, and I'm not going to say it depends. My answer is flip a coin, because as I've been saying for a while now, we're in really a 50-50 market. You know, I don't claim any special powers to be able to predict the future. What I try and do is assess the data and then uh, try and assign probabilities and come up with probabilities as to what is likely or unlikely to happen. And in current market conditions, I think the odds are pretty much 50-50. I can make arguments as to why I think the market can continue to go higher. And although that may sound crazy given current conditions, I mean, look at the stock market and specifically look at the NASDAQ over the last, you know, two or three weeks, it's been making record highs almost on an every other day type basis. And so there still is a lot of potential for this market to run and move higher, even given the crazy situations we have right now with the resurgence of COVID hysteria and all the people that have been laid off and those people that have been, have received pay cuts. And all the many, particularly small businesses that are filing for bankruptcy, even though we have all that going on on Main Street, 
you have to remember that Wall Street has different parameters that it operates under compared to the day-to-day regular economy. And right now, there's a huge amount of cash flow because of the, the money spigots that have been turned on by the Federal Reserve intervention and all the stimulus spending that's literally put trillions and trillions of dollars into the marketplace. And much of that money is finding its way into the stock market. And as a result of that, because people are worried, whether they be small individual investors or or large hedge funds, a lot of people do see these potential problems of what's going on with these extended COVID shutdowns. And so they're avoiding certain stocks and certain sectors of the economy, but they still want to invest. And so more and more people are putting more and more money into a smaller and smaller segment of stocks. And so the reason the NASDAQ and the technology sector of the stock market, the reason they keep making new record highs is because all this investable capital is being crammed into stocks like Apple and Microsoft and Google and Amazon. Those big name, big tech, big capital type stocks, um, also like Tesla, those are the ones that are keep going up day after day. And although I believe that they're overbought and that those valuations on those companies have been extremely stretched, This could continue to go on for some time, as it always does, because markets over the short term are not affected by rationality. They move on emotion. And when you get to an extreme peak like this, the market will continue to run until it gets exhausted and until there's no one left, no other suckers left, to come in and pay those high prices for those stocks. And when that happens, instead of greed, there's a bunch of fear and panic And the same cycle starts all over again. Prices are driven down lower and lower. And when that happens, the bubble pops, the cycle reverses, and instead of having irrational exuberance, you have fear and panic. Prices collapse. They go lower and lower, again, until they get exhausted, until there's no one left to sell. Then the dust settles, things consolidate, and the prices start moving back up again. Now, the question is, you know, this time around, will prices drop 3%, 5%, 30%. My personal opinion is is that we are definitely set for at least a 10 or a 15% pullback. However, I am not Nostradamus. I have no idea if it will take place. I've actually been selling my positions over the last six weeks or more, uh, taking profits out consistently as the market has gone up because I thought we were going to actually hit a peak back when the S&P 500 was around 3,000. And, you know, we've been flirting well above the 3,100 level for, for a couple months now. So my projections are off, but I do believe that that other side of the 50-50 argument is that with all the foreclosures and the unemployment, uh, the people that are either taking pay cuts or have been furloughed or their companies are no longer funding their 401k programs. I mean, all these chickens are coming home to roost. And I believe that at some point that is not just going to impact, you know, one or two sectors like commercial real estate in Manhattan, but it's going to have a much broader impact. And I do believe it's going to affect the general stock market. And so non-coincidentally, just like I'm saying to uh, you know flip a coin whether this market is going to go up or down, it's a 50-50 move. Well, I pretty much have positioned my personal portfolio to where I'm 50% in the market and I'm 50% in cash. That way, if the market does continue to rise, I'll be able to participate in some of that. And then on the other hand, if we do get a pullback, I'll have a good chunk of my cash reserves that I can go in and buy the dip. 
and I would plan to buy the dip because, no, at this point, I do not think that we're at a long-term market recession or a long-term economic slowdown that we saw, you know, that was prolonged over 2008, the Great Recession. I think we're still in transitory problems that eventually the COVID virus is going to burn itself out. And the whole bottom line on this is that there has just been too much money interjected into the system. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet is now over $7 trillion. And so that means that over about a six or eight week period, the Federal Reserve injected about the same amount of money into the economy that they did over the entire, you know, four year or so process of quantitative easing. And to even amplify the situation from what we saw back during the Great Recession is that not only is the Federal Reserve spending money, but you have all the congressional spending from the CARES Act to the Payroll Protection Plan. Uh, they're getting ready to launch the HEROES Act and then come in with a secondary payroll protection plan. All these things are, again, going to inject literally trillions of dollars back into the economy. And we're talking over such a short period of time that I do believe we're going to get through this COVID situation and the markets will probably be okay until sometime in 2022. It, it looks to me, the way I look at the data, that there are a lot of really negative things that are converging and could be taking place in 2022. But until then, and definitely over the next few months leading up to the election, you can just flip a coin to figure out what's going on because the market is just about as likely to go up as it is to go down. If it goes down, I personally do plan to buy that dip. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Let me mitigate this just a bit on this. First of all, if you're going to buy a dip, you have to have capital. Okay, so if you think a dip's coming you might want to take some portion of your income and create a capital reserve to buy the dip. Everything's a risk. You could have the market explode upward tomorrow because of some perceived good news, just like you could have it crash because of some perceived bad news. Additionally, not everybody is or has a John Pugliano managing their money so that as indicators start to pop up, you can quickly and rapidly change your position and or mitigate risk by hedging on the backside of loss. So when John talks to you, he's talking to you as a very accomplished money manager who is not a day trader, but certainly trades stocks at opportune times. That's one way to look at this. On the other side of it, if you are the person that simply throws money into a couple mutual funds in your 401k, I'm not screaming, get out, get out, get out, get out, yet. But you better stay on this thing really, really tight and pay attention. And as you'll hear when I do my segment today, there are some things that I believe not might happen that are going to happen. Now, this is where I agree with John. In some ways, we don't know how the market will respond to them. We know that there'll be short-term sell-offs, etc., to some of this news. But on the other hand, we don't know what type of intervention these bankers have planned. Often, what is not good for Main Street can still be good for Wall Street. However, I think there will be a time in the coming months where it will be time to get out. All the way out. Completely out. And I will tell you that I'm not 100% in right now. And I can't say more than that. Anyway. 
let's move on. And uh, I got a question for uh, Dr. Ken Berry on keto for people that are of slight build, people that don't need to lose weight. Ken, take it away, man. Hey, Jack and all the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician with 20 years of clinical experience. And I'm answering a question from Jim in New England about whether people who are thin or hard gainers should uh, consider a ketogenic diet and if that's healthy, if they can loosen restrictions, etc. So I consider the ketogenic diet to be part of the spectrum of a proper human diet. Human beings are designed to eat a low carbohydrate diet by design. And so eating too many carbohydrates is not only going to promote weight gain, but it's also going to promote chronic disease and inflammation and can lead to hundreds of other medical and nutritional complications. So for someone who's thin, they, they, they don't necessarily have to do keto for weight loss. And in fact, the ketogenic way of eating is not technically a weight loss diet. Most people definitely come to keto trying to lose weight. But even for thin, healthy people, eating a diet filled with fatty meat and a little bit of veg is the proper human diet. And so it's absolutely acceptable for someone who's very slender to eat a ketogenic diet. It is not going to make you lose weight unless you have stored fat in excess that you need to lose. And so when someone who's thin eats a ketogenic diet full of fatty meat and a little bit of veg, maybe some berries, they can actually put on a few pounds of muscle effortlessly without even having to work out. Now, you're never going to become muscle-bound just eating keto. It doesn't work that way. But you're going to hold a natural amount of muscle, and you're not going to burn any extra fat because you don't have any extra fat. But you are going to be lowering your risk of all of the chronic diseases caused by the modern diet. You're going to be lowering your levels of inflammation. And in fact, many people who are slender who started keto report back to me that their, their knee arthritis is better, their reflux is better, their skin conditions are better. So it's absolutely healthy for someone to eat a keto diet if they're very slender. Now, someone who's very slender can actually branch out a little more and eat more carbohydrates. I recommend for most people that you try to keep your total carbohydrate intake under 20 total grams a day. But for somebody like Jim in New England, who's very slender, they could probably do great on a keto diet that, that contains less than 50 total grams of carbohydrates a day. And so they could include more berries, they could in include more vegetables, and maybe even some fruits in their keto diet. And as long as their belt is still fitting properly, and the scale is saying what you want it to say, then you can keto on just fine. I hope this helps. Thanks a lot. I'm going to put that one under the file of I completely agree. Uh, I agree with all of it, along with um, certainly I want a person, not just a person that's slight of build and uh, doesn't need to lose any weight, um, but a person who has met their goals can certainly increase their carbohydrate allowance. Uh, on keto, I've been eating around um, 30 to 35 net carbs since I met my primary weight loss goal of getting down to 205 pounds. And 205 for me is probably, for an average person of my height, uh, I'm now built the way a lot of people at my height would be built at about 180. 
I'm a I am a large man. I have broad shoulders, big legs. I have I actually have huge legs from a muscular standpoint. Always have. So I'm I, I, I'm really I'm targeting long term getting down to about 195. And even eating that 30 to 35 carb limit, I've continued to lose like a pound a month consistently. Uh, even going on vacation and you know drinking quite a bit of beer. Uh, we were also drinking those seltzers, so that kind of interferes. Like alcohol totally screws up uh, any weight loss regime. It, it just does. I'm sorry. You can have a drink or two a week. That's about it. While you're trying to lose weight, and, and really you don't want to have too much anyway. But on vacation, you know, you can kind of party a little bit and eating some fried food and stuff like that, and definitely going off the reservation, not the entire time, but you know, a day here and a day there with some cheats. I gained nothing. I came back and expected I put five pounds on on vacation. I put nothing on. Because when you have your body running optimally, if you don't totally abuse it, you can occasionally do this stuff and not have much of a response to it. And like I said, I'm about to go into kind of a, a new workout regime uh, starting in a couple weeks here when we get some things in order. And I'm going to be a little bit more strict on my carbohydrate intake and, and, and drop down to more like 25, 27 carbs. And I want to I want to bring that, you know, I weighed in this morning at 193. So I've... I've been around 195, or I'm mean, sorry, I mean 203. I've been around 205, went on vacation, just coming back and straightening my shit out for a week, and, and I'm back to 203. So I, I, my my intention now over the next probably three to four months, because I'm at that point where you, when you do this, you can lose a shitload of weight, and, and it looks like, a, it's like a reverse curve, man. It's, you come down like a rock. And it kind of slows down, plateaus a little bit, then it kind of drops again, but it's a lot less. And then, the, like the last 10 pounds, that's where you really got to put the effort in. And uh, so I'm going to do that, and I want to get into that 195 range. And at that point, I have no desire to lose another pound. And at that point, you know, my average carbohydrate intake will probably be somewhere between 30 and 40 carbohydrates a day, net. And as long as I don't start putting weight back on, I won't worry about it. I'm going to keep my drinking well moderated. I don't drink much hardly at all anymore. Um, and uh, when I do, I'll drink a light beer or a vodka tonic or something like that, and I'll have one or two. And that's just a better way to live. And you guys know me. I was a party guy, but just telling you, it's a better way to live. And I'm going to say that I really agree, again, 100% with what Ken said about slaughter build people. And some of the people that I know that I think could benefit the most from keto don't need to lose any weight. And I really wish they would give it a shot. And I'll say something else about that before I put this one to bed. Some of y'all have a spouse that needs to lose weight. And if they don't lose weight, you know, you never know which one of you is going to go first. But you know if that person doesn't lose weight, you're going to bury them. They're not going to bury you. And you're going to bury them before they should go. And you might think, gee, I wish my wife, husband, insert name for your special other person here would do keto like Jack did. It would save their life. Do it with them. Do it with them. You do it too. I don't care if you don't lose, need to lose weight. You will feel better. You will lengthen your life. You will improve your health. You will not hurt yourself. Do it with them. I cannot tell you how much easier this has all been because Dorothy and I have been united in this. I'm not sitting here trying to make sure I don't overdo my carbs and watching her eat a plate full of potatoes. It makes it so much easier when you do it together. Commit to your spouse. If you'll try this, 
I'll do it with you. And when they tell you you don't need to, you say, I'm worried about being healthy, and I'm worried about you being healthy. The weight loss, as Ken kind of inferred there, is really a byproduct of getting your hormone balance right. Humans are not designed to eat large carbohydrate diets. We're just not. Anyway, let's go on. I guess I was almost as long as Ken on that response there. Anyway, Gary Collins now on all season living in RVs and getting the right RV for your needs from the start and coming at it from a standpoint of somebody building off-grid. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com where I discuss making and living the life of your dreams. That's the whole point of it, right? I know I do. I followed it. I teach it. It works. Also, make sure to check out my new new podcast. Well, been around a while now. Your Better Life, host Gary Collins. Open format, a lot of interesting guests, no censorship, so you may have to wear your cuss muffs. Just warning you. It's not too bad, but... All right, today, the importance of buying the correct RV to start your off-grid adventure, if that's the way you're going to go. For a lot of us, we start out living in our RV as we build because there are no loans for off-grid properties. Unless you're a rancher, I've heard of a couple people because they have an income base, even though their ranch is off-grid. I've heard of them getting loans, but no one else. If you're just average Jane or Joe going to build a house off-grid, you have to pay cash. That's what I did. It took me five years. It's uh, But at the end, you own it. Now, if you're going to do like I did, I, I couldn't live on my property with my RV. Is too, I couldn't get it up here. <laughs> Way too hard. Long story there. But most people do. They start off in an RV, build their house. It's an easy way, cheap way to go. If you're going to do it, though, and you live, most people will live in a more kind of uh, unpredictable climate, shall we say. No one's going to have it 75 degrees all year long in their off-grid property piece of cake. You need to get an all-season RV. has to be rated all-season and get dual-pane windows. Make sure it has those. Trust me on this one. It will save you a ton of headache and freezing in the winter and roasting in the summer. I've, I've got so many emails over this over the years. I've lost track. It's, it's hundreds of people who bought a cheap RV that was, they're primarily meant for camp, camping. They're not all season rated and miserable. Went through hundreds, if not over a thousand gallons of propane just trying to stay alive. Trust me, you don't want to do it that way. So even if you're in extreme cold weather, I mean, you're, it's cold. RVs are, you know, in a little rough living. I would recommend, a, you know, a travel trailer if you live, you know, it's rough roads and all that. That's going to be the easiest to get up. But if your roads are flat, you can do the Class A, B, C. You can get a travel trailer, fifth wheel. Again, just make sure they're rated all season. That is the easiest way to go. And I hope that helps and it'll say, again, save you a lot of headache because all the other ones, they're just made for camping here and there. They're not made for living in long term, any of that stuff. Again, guys, the simplelifenow.com podcast, your better life. Next up, Derek, Derek Bompietro on doing a rebuild of a diesel motor. This is a great project to uh, to learn a lot from. I, I, I'll tell you, in fact, I'm gonna, before I put Derek, I'm just going to say that for a lot of y'all that want to know more about mechanics, internal combustion engines, everything like that, 
rebuilding a motor is a great project, even if you don't need one. And odds are that you can rebuild a motor that you can find for next to nothing and sell it and make a little bit of money, even if you just get the money you put into it back. Okay? The, you've gotten a free education. And you will understand so much more. In fact, you know, like many of y'all know, I was a mechanic in the Army. The first thing they had us do, even though we were in diesel mechanics, was take apart a lawnmower engine, a simple lawnmower, one-cylinder lawnmower engine, and then take apart, completely break down, and put back together the motor that they put in the Humvees. That was the first thing we did, down to the pistons out of the cylinders and shafts out every thing apart as though we were going to rebuild it and put it back together. Now, those particular motors were not in vehicles. They were dry. Um, you know, they were, they were designed as classroom tools. But that experience, and I thought I knew a lot about vehicles at the time, and I did. But what I learned in that experience, even though I already knew what everything was inside of there, what it did, Something about actually disassembling it, seeing it, looking at it, putting it back together, and knowing I put it back together the way it's supposed to go together changes you just a little bit as a mechanic and as a troubleshooter, and those lessons go further than just being a mechanic. So with that, Derek, let's talk about rebuilding a diesel motor. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the affordable DC power supply and battery charger. Got a question from Michael. He's looking at doing some... Cummins 12 valve work, so let's get into it. When ordering a rebuild kit for a diesel engine, what does it mean when asking about bore size, head gasket thickness, connecting rod bearings, etc.? The details, I'm purchasing a used 12 valve Cummins engine to rebuild, then put in my 97 Dodge Ram 2500. Although I have worked on engines in frame before, I've never rebuilt an engine from the ground up. Should I order the rebuild kit after I have the engine disassembled in a case? I need to have the cylinders bored or any other issues. Why would someone want, need different size connecting rod bearings or thicker head gaskets than stock OEM replacements? There are so many options when ordering a rebuild kit. Is it more practical to order the parts independently? Also, with all these options, can you explain why some of them are necessary? That's a very, very complex question and a complex answer. Uh, so I want to back up. you got a three-quarter ton Dodge Ram. It's got a 12-valve Cummins. I'm assuming that's what you have, and this isn't like an engine swap, so to speak, as far as like going from gas to diesel. So you've already got the Cummins. You're buying a used one to rebuild and swap this out. My question is, that particular engine is like 500,000 to a million-mile engine, and typically the Dodge Ram that surrounds the Cummins engine fails much earlier than the actual engine will. So I'm kind of curious, the little backstory on your on your vehicle. You know, did you blow up the Cummins that was already in it? And why are you buying a used one as opposed to a remand one? Um, I would think maybe you would have just rebuilt the one you already have since you kind of know the history on it and, and you've already got one. You don't have to purchase it and then purchase the rebuild kit. So um, I would probably look to rebuilding what you've already got before you buy something else, unless I had catastrophic damage like it threw a rod and blew the block up. So the question is, why are all these different sized components need to be purchased with the rebuild kit? And this answer really goes to any type of internal combustion engine, doesn't really matter if it's gas or diesel or two-stroke, is that typically you're going to see things where uh, smaller or larger, larger. So the pistons are going to create a uh, wear in the bore pattern that's going to be like oval shaped and it's going to be larger than the actual piston and obviously you create sealing issues and so when you bore that out uh, a machinist is going to make the hole larger 
and what I would call square, but it's actually round, is that it's perfectly round. And so a bearing surface on like a crankshaft, when it wears, it gets smaller. And so when you buy these rebuild parts, you need to compensate for that machine work. So for example, when you bore the engine out for a larger piston, whether you're just doing the machine work to make everything nice and square and perfect, or you're trying to gain extra displacement so you make the piston physically larger, you're going to do those in set intervals. So it's going to be bored out 30 thousandths, 60 thousandths, 90 thousandths, you know, dimensions like that. And the bearing surfaces you're going to see are going to be larger because when you machine that crankshaft, you have to take material off to make it perfectly round again. And so the larger bearing has to compensate for that. So that's really where you got to talk to a machinist, you got to talk to an engine builder when they're rebuilding these or, or, or machining these parts. They're going to know because well, how much wear does that piston bore or does that crankshaft have? So if yours is really chewed up, they might have to machine one or two steps further than they normally would to make the dimension perfectly round. And so you wouldn't want to buy the rebuild kit until somebody tears it down, takes the measurements, and knows exactly how far to machine things. If you have a stock engine and it just has high miles, you probably don't have to go one size over in the pistons and the bearing sizes. But if you had any kind of failure that might have created a chip or a gouge or something like that in a bearing surface or a piston surface uh, in, inside of the bore, then they might have to take more material to get things absolutely perfect. So again, don't buy the rebuild kit until the machinist goes through and makes everything perfect. Now, typically you wouldn't have to purchase a uh, thicker head gasket. Um, when the machinist decks the block or the head, so to speak, they're making it perfectly flat, which is going to keep the, uh, the gasket from sealing properly. So they make those perfectly flat against each other. Now they might have to take some material off to do that, now, sometimes you can use a thicker head gasket to restore the compression ratio or fitment of certain components on the engine, but usually that doesn't matter unless, unless you're going after some kind of like race-oriented parts where you need to maintain dimensions or you're trying to gain or lose compression. Um, don't worry about that. I don't think that's necessarily a big deal. The only thing you'd really chase after with head gasket is, is really the quality of the, of the gasket itself. So, you know, stock, stock gasket, no problem. You're going to start pumping the turbo up, feeding more boost, you know, increasing the fueling on the engine. You might want to look into something that's a little more rugged. You know, in general, you go from a, a single layer head gasket, which is the OEM piece, to like a multi-layer or something that has some copper embedded in it. And, and that'll give you a little bit more strength and durability if you're going to start, you know, feeding more power to it. And then you can really step up from there. Uh, they go into a, a ringed uh, material, so they actually machine a groove into the um, the bore of the piston and place a ring in there and that holds up to a lot more boost and you end up going from like head bolts to studs but it doesn't sound like you're going down that so i'd keep just the stock gasket or maybe an upgraded one just to increase the reliability of things now michael um got a couple of concerns with this um necessarily with the cummins engine is that one it's gigantic most engine stands aren't going to fit it you're going to need to really beef up the equipment you're using to work on this thing and it's very, very heavy. You know, fully dressed, you're, you're into the four-digit numbers in the pounds. So uh, you've got to have the right equipment. And I'm sure you probably need some special pullers and seal drivers and things like that. On top of the usual stuff for any engine, you know, micrometers, uh, bore gauges. Uh, you know, you're going to be able to measure bearing clearances using some plastic gauge. So there's, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of details that go into building an engine. There's a lot of fine dimensions like between the rings and the bearings, and it's not necessarily a do-it-yourselfer job, especially if you want to get a quality product. You know, Cummins again could potentially go a million miles on the original long block assembly, so you got to really pay close attention to detail. It sounds like with the question that you're asking is that. Uh, if you're not familiar with these dimensions and things like that, that you might want to just farm this out to somebody that does engine rebuilds, especially like in the diesel and the Cummins. There's plenty of specialists out there that, that do these types of things, and you might be better off having somebody just rebuild it, get it to you on a pallet, and then you can jam it in your truck and save some money by doing the labor yourself, but leave engine rebuilding to the experts. I can do engine repair myself. I took it in college, did it in the field, taught engine mechanics, ASC certified in engine repair, and I myself really wouldn't want to put together uh, a short or a long block assembly just based on the time and the amount of attention to detail. I'd rather just let a pro that does it day in and day out take care of that particular assembly and then do the rest myself. Unless I just had an absolute ton of time laying around and, and was doing it for fun. I, I, realistically, with engines and transmissions and axles, sometimes it's better to let the pros do it and let them gather all the correct pieces and, and do it for you. Uh, if you plan on doing it yourself, rebuild kit, probably the best idea because it's all inclusive. You're going to get the gaskets, the hard parts, and you're not going to get the assembly started and then, oh, I forgot a piece. So I'd go down that route. I'd get a pro involved if you got the extra money and just let them take care of that. Well, Michael, I hope that answers your question. Take care, guys. All right, so next up, I've got a great segment from Tim the Toolman Cook. A little bit of follow-up on some spray foam. And a really new cool tool from DeWalt, a DeWalt brushless pole saw. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada, back here again for the Expert Council. Going to do things a little bit different this week. I'm going to share with you a follow-up email I got um, regarding one of our questions from a couple of weeks ago. And then I'm going to share with you a couple of products, or a product and a tool, that I've been using that have blown me away recently. So first, I wanted to share with you, uh, Andy wrote back to say how happy he was making the jump from 18-volt to 20-volt DeWalt. So he writes, about a month ago, I asked if I should keep my DeWalt 18-volt tools and purchase new batteries or start purchasing the 20-volt system. I followed your advice and the advice from a previous expert council show, and for Father's Day, received the DeWalt brushless 20-volt drill and impact drill for $129, the regular price being $159. Luckily, my birthday also falls on June and I really nailed my wife's birthday gift last February. I couldn't be any happier. I didn't realize the power difference, how much the smaller battery could do, and on top of that, it weighs noticeably less and is smaller, making it more maneuverable in cramped spaces. Thanks, both of you, for the advice. Now i got to go out and replace the 12-volt batteries in the kids' power wheels with 18-volt for some extra speed. So it sounds like, Andy, you're uh, real happy with the switch. I'm glad. Sounds like your kids are going to be awfully happy getting faster power wheels, too. So, you know, if you have any more questions, guys, about these um, DeWalt tools and different battery lineups and stuff, keep sending them in because uh, it's really good to hear that uh, Andy made the jump and he's happy. So this week I wanted to share with you a couple of products, like I said. Um, the first one I wanted to share is the DeWalt 20-volt brushless pole saw. So we've been getting a lot more calls uh, all the time lately to trim tree branches away from around uh, utility lines like cable, internet, that sort of thing, phone lines, away from eaves trough and roofs. And I've always been using an electric pole saw, 
which means when you go to a customer's house, you got to find power outside, you got to run an extension cord, and it was time for me to find a cordless option. All my gas-powered gear was still. Their decent pole saw starts at around 500 bucks. Also, same for their battery option, which I don't have any other products, so there's no interchangeability there. So I figured, hey, let's go online, see what DeWalt has. Turns out they got a great option. It's brushless with a 15-foot reach. So, on a whim, I ordered it. It was half price here in Canada. It was about $250. Down in the States, right now on Amazon, I think it's just over 200 bucks. Everything I've done with it so far has been wonderful. The saw is just heavy enough to cut through the branches easily, but balanced enough that it doesn't tax my shoulders. So that's kind of nice. It has more power than the electric one that I had, and it's much safer than climbing a tree with a chainsaw because a couple of years ago I took a nasty spill when the uh, ladder went sideways and I went down. Luckily didn't get hurt, but it could have been bad. So, you know, always looking out for safety as well. Um, I did a review on this one just recently. I was able to cut through a 4x4 over 60 times after trimming a couple dozen branches off of one of my trees in my backyard, and this was all with the same 5-amp battery. And I recently took a job that had a whole bunch of overhead branches. The lady needed to be able to get underneath with her ride-on lawnmower. That was about a half mile of a laneway. I filled my 6-foot truck box with me, six times with brush and limbs mounted right over. I brought three five amp hour batteries with me and the best thing was I didn't have to change the battery once. So if you guys got a lot of overhead trimming to do, this is seriously the answer. Especially if you've already invested in DeWalt infrastructure, this stuff has this one has blown me away. It's the best of both worlds. It's got the ease of start of electric and the convenience and power and runtime of a gas. So the second product I wanted to talk about it's something I wanted to try for a long time, but whenever I need to use a new product, I want to be the guinea pig. So we needed to build a fence around my backyard to keep my dogs in. So I finally had a chance to try out this expanding foam for fence posts. It takes a place of concrete and takes out so much of the work. I'd watched videos. I was a bit skeptical, but I turned into a convert pretty quick. So each of these little two-pound bags that come in a box of foam, they take the place of two 60-pound bags of premixed concrete. So my wife and I were able to auger out 21 holes, put the posts in, put the foam in, have them set up, and go indoors in less than three hours. This seriously, it had almost no downside to it. Something I learned is the warmer the temperatures, the faster the foam expands, but within five to seven minutes tops, you can walk away from that post. It's secure, and an hour later you can hang boards off it if you want. They say you can hang them even quicker than that, but I, w I was fine with an hour later if I wanted to. You literally hold the post in place with a post level on it, watch the foam come up, and it sets while you're there. Uh, no need to put up any supports, no need to wait for concrete to dry for 24 hours before you can use it. It just goes so quick. You don't need to spend the extra time and labor to mix up the concrete. You don't need to have access to water. It's about 15 bucks a bag which is really not a whole lot more than if you bought two bags of premixed concrete. And for what that's worth, I mean, the extra couple of dollars saves you a ton of time. It's worth it. I This stuff has blown me away. I'll use it again. I've actually already used it once on a customer's site. We just did a short little fence, and they loved it. I loved it. If you have a little bit of foam left on the top of the surface, just you can basically cut it away or just give it a little kick, 
and the stuff above surface breaks right off, and then you can just skim a little dirt on top of that. A couple of quick tips I found. Mix it well for like 30 seconds over a non-sharp surface like your shining shoes. When it's warmer, it sets up quicker, so be ready. Have your posts in the ground already. One bag will do a four-foot hole, six inches wide, with a four-by-four in it. The brand I used was Fast2K, but Sika also makes one. It's supposed to be just as good. Uh, I got a new video showing how this really works, so check that out too if you want. Both these products are available from Amazon. I sent the links to Jack, so if you do pick them up, remember T-Spaz to support Jack in the podcast. And guys, if you want more tool reviews and product reviews of things that actually work, things I've used, drop by and subscribe to my All Seasons Maintenance YouTube channel. I got three videos a week. Monday is a money-making minute. Wednesday is a product or tool review, and Friday's video course is the ongoing series Growing a Successful Handyman Business. So thanks, guys. Keep those questions coming in for tools, woodworking, lawn care, and more. And stay happy, stay healthy, and you guys have a great week. All right, so I want to point out the link that Tim sent me was for a bare tool version of the DeWalt uh, tool. And I also want to point out that I love, I absolutely love, that DeWalt sells almost every one of their tools is a bare tool. Because once you have so many batteries and so many chargers, you don't necessarily need any more. But I think most of us feel this way about batteries. If I can get one for less, I'll take it. Especially when it comes to DeWalt 4, 5, and 6 amp hour batteries. Now, unfortunately, the battery that comes with the saw that comes with the battery... I say, unfortunately, it's a 4-amp-hour versus a 5- or 6-amp-hour battery. I kind of find the 5-amp-hour batteries to be the best balance uh, of weight to power in your tools, honestly. The 6s are a bit big. They throw some of the tools off of balance. And they actually have a, a bit of an issue with working if you're using an adapter with some of the old 18-volt tools with actually fitting right. Um, but... You know, other than that, I'll take what I can get. And I've got some 6-amp-hours, and, and they do last longer. That said, a 4-amp-hour battery and is is a good battery. We're not talking like a 1.5 or something like that, some of the little skinny ones that come with the cheap tools. So it's a good battery. And I certainly don't mind having another, you know, official, real DeWalt battery. And even the knockoff batteries that are the best are not as good as the DeWalt's. I've seen a lot of testing done on them. So if I can get a battery with the saw, and I'm going to be buying a battery anytime soon, and that battery can cost me less money by buying it with the tool, I might want to consider doing it, unless I just don't have the money, don't want to spend the money right now, and don't need it right now. So here's how the math breaks down. If you buy the bare tool, you can get it for $149. I'm highly tempted to get one, even though I really don't need one, because I have the little Black & Decker saw, because I think this thing is just freaking badass. If you need a pole saw, this thing is the, the lick, man. Um, but the battery, the 4-amp-hour battery, the exact same battery, if I look it up and buy it individually on Amazon, it costs $90. $90. We all know the vault batteries are expensive, and they're generally worth it. So the way the math works out on that is $149 saw and a, a $90 battery would cost me $239. So $219, I'm saving $20 on the battery. Effectively... I'm getting the battery for $70. And that's, you know, sometimes you can get them for 70 but that's a fair price on a battery. But I'm also getting a charger. And I, I, I'm on that guy, too. I, have, I, I don't know. I'm sure there is a number of DeWalt chargers that eventually I will have and go, I don't want anymore. Like, there's enough in my charging station now, but I'm not there yet. 
And the charger from DeWalt, the cheapest I can find, it's 35 bucks. You can get an aftermarket charger. I have not found them to be anything inadequate. So you, you could get that for 25 bucks. And a bunch of people make them. And unlike the batteries, the aftermarket chargers seem to work absolutely fine. Just like the aftermarket adapters for the 18 volts. So you can keep using your old 18 volt tools with new batteries. Um, they just seem to be work, they seem to be the same damn thing, honestly. And it's because we're not putting a bunch of, you know, actual, like 18650s wadded into it and we're not using a cheaper battery. You're just charging. So even if you did it for $25, getting the saw, a battery, and a charger would cost you $264 versus the $214. So I think that, in, like, like I said, unless you just have enough, you ain't going to buy one anytime soon, you don't have the money, but you need the saw. In this case, I would probably spend the extra money. And remember, the reason I analyze stuff like this and, and break down and say, you know, it's over 20 bucks or whatever, is when you make those smart decisions across a year, ha you know, half a decade, a full decade, they start to add up to real money. And by thinking this way, always be frugal, never be cheap, one of my laws of life. It, it's a tremendous amount of money over your lifetime that you save, capital that you defer spending versus capital you spend up front and get a longer value out of. You think of the lifetime value of a purchase. And as you're about to hear, that might become more important than it's ever been in the minds of most living individuals. All right, so my segment today, I'll, I want to talk to you about why I believe, and when I say soon, it could be six months could be almost a year before it really sets into people's minds. So that tempers what you heard from John today about still being opportunity in the stock market. And remember, the stock market can be way up, and if you're unemployed and can't pay your bills, it doesn't really help you. Okay? So, so keep that in mind as I go through this today. I was going to do a video with this, but every once in a while, a reciprocating saw kicks on or an oscillating tool or a nail gun or an air compressor. And when I do video segments of the show, I just turn the camera on and I don't do any editing and I don't think that's going to be possible today. So maybe I'll break this out and do a video on YouTube if you want to share this segment where it's just a picture or something like that, but probably not. And it's going to be shorter than I originally planned. I was going to cite a bunch of articles for you and read from them and all, and I, I just want to give you the nitty-gritty today and keep today's episode kind of short. This is just the second episode since I got back. And after being on the beach and all that long, it strains my voice when I come back. So I want to you know, get kind of break in slow. So I want to break this into three indicators or three niches or three markets for you and just make you understand how bad things really can get from here. Now, again, before I left, I said that the decisions that our elected officials make in the next 60 days would determine whether we had a recession or a depression, but we're getting one. And we were already in a recession, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. And those decisions would also make a choice for us whether we would have a really painful, protracted, long, bumpy recession or a relatively short, corrected recession. I'm not 100% on this yet, but I, I feel the preponderance of evidence is that enough stupidity has continued to make it the long, protracted version. How long and how protracted and how bumpy, I don't know yet. But it won't be... It won't be less than 2008, 2009. It will be at least that bad. That's our. That's kind of my threshold right now. It could be much worse. And if we get really stupid with what we're about to do, and we might, then we could have a depression. 
I'm talking 1929 through the 1930s depression. I don't want to scare you. I'm not a hype person. And I'm not telling you it's inevitable. But I feel like it's a definite possibility. And my job is to tell you when something's possible. And the three indicators I want to talk about today are education, real estate, and retail. And again, there's, there's about nine other segments that are going to go through massive flux, energy, health care, etc. And that flux was going to happen over 10 years. And I think the majority of those segments now, that the majority, not all, but the majority of that shift and flux will happen in two to three. And in some cases, the majority of that flux might now happen in a year to 18 months. And it was going to hurt over 10 years. Let's think about it in months. 10 years is 120 months. Three years is 36 months. What society was going to get 120 months to adapt to, they're going to have to get through in 36. That that seems a little different, but it actually will help you mentally kind of get your mind around that some of this shit that was going to take, you know, if, if we if we keep using that formula to kind of really drive home what we're dealing with here. I mean, just to keep it easy in your head, because it's not exactly linear, um, you're at a point where a quarter, a three-month period, now represents somewhere in the neighborhood of nine months to one year of what we were going to deal with. We'll, we'll compact... Uh, three quarters of a year to a full year into only a single quarter. Quarters go by, boom. Guys, we're in, what, Q3 of 2020. You you start to realize the, the, the imminent nature of some of this stuff occurring. So let me just give you the, the short version, and I've talked about all this before, but I want you to start to see the total picture here. Let's start out with education. Harvard University. And again, I was going to cite a bunch of articles and stuff. If you doubt any of this, just like yesterday, look it up. Harvard University has announced they will be doing 100% of their classes online this year. Now, I think Harvard's trying to get ahead of it and actually put other people out of business, knowing that they have kind of, let's call it the name brand recognition, that they're still going to be able to charge $40,000 a year, take correspondence course online. <laughs> okay. And then maybe they can put some other people under faster or force them into this model because they also know that once this shit kind of dries up and blows away, and it will, that they'll be able to maintain their campus and reopen their physical campus and maybe put, you see what I'm saying? Because they know the whole market's going to shrink. But in the end, this is back to what I talked about with homeschooling. The number one way I get you to buy a car is I get you to come into my dealership, get behind the wheel, and drive the car. That's the most important thing I can do if I want to sell you a car and you're not just ready to buy. That's the number. That's why even some of the car dealerships have done things where they do like the the, the week they call it the weekend test drive. You come in, you sign all the paperwork, except you don't execute the contract to buy. This was a, a gimmick. A G, GM ran this for a while. Um, Hyundai ran this for a while. So the way it worked is you went in on like a Friday, you picked up your car. And they had all the credit, everything done like you were going to buy the car, but you just didn't officially agree to buy the car, which in most states you have 72 hours to return the car anyway. Okay? And then you took the car home and you drove it for a weekend. And if you wanted it, you went back in, filled out one last piece of paper, and you kept it. 
You didn't even fill it out. You just signed it, and, and you kept a car. Because they knew most people that took that car home for the weekend wouldn't want to give it back. They got home, they got to smell it, they got to drive it. Well, what's going to cause this growth? And I estimate the growth in homeschooling. And, and keep in mind, there's about 3 million homeschoolers officially right now. I expect the growth in homeschooling in 2020 to be somewhere around 3 to 5 million people based on about 55 million uh, elementary and, and junior high and high school students in America at any given time. 3 to 5 million, so more than doubled. And the reason of that simply goes down to parents got to test drive it. Well, the same thing is going to happen here with college. Students are going to get to test drive not having to go to a school, not having to have the cost of a dorm room, being able to stay in mommy's basement while they're in college versus have to move back to it after college. And what's going to do is open up an entire new level of competition with schools saying, well, if we're going to do it this way, we can do it for less money. And then that starts a race. And it also starts opening up, well, if that's good enough for college, why isn't doing it for some other program good enough, and why do we need college? Not for everything, but for a lot of things. And this is going to create a massive drop in the number of schools that we need at both the, the grade school and high school, middle school, all that stuff, junior high, kindergarten, and at the university level with two dramatically different effects. The public education sector is this whole group of people with safe, secure government jobs and a shitload of laid-off, never-coming-back-to-work teachers, which I said would happen over 10 years. And now it'll happen over three, maybe to three to four in some instances. But if I've said this for a long time, if you are not a top 50% teacher, especially if you're not really good at teaching in this new model, because a lot of people will go to homeschool, but they'll do virtual government school. And the teachers that are good at teaching in that model will keep their jobs. And teachers will go from having a class of 25 to a class of 90. They'll need less of you. So that's a whole segment laid off with no real great job prospects, not because the not because good teachers can't do other jobs, but because the teachers that are going to lose their jobs are the ones that really can't get a job that's any better, which is why they stayed in the first place. So you got that you're got millions of people without a job anymore. They thought they had safe, secure retirements with a pittance of the retirement they were expecting. At the same time. When this happens to the university system, I'm telling you that you're going to see sizable colleges either downsize to almost nothing or completely close their doors and go to a 100% online model. And if you can't see that being possible, let me give you two names, Blockbuster and Netflix. Blockbuster and Netflix. How many towns watched themselves fall halfway apart as Blockbuster died and all the little video stores died and all the out, you know, the record stores died? But yet, it was a pretty small segment of the economy, so even though it certainly didn't help, it only hurt so bad. Okay. Now, how many of y'all have driven across the country? 
seen a town on the map. I've never heard of this place before. But, hey, there's gas and restaurants there. We'll stop there. A little bit off the interstate. So if you'd not known it was there, you might have drove right past it. You drive about a mile off the interstate, come into downtown and go, wait a minute. This isn't a town. This is a little city. They got everything. They got multiple Walmarts. They got a Costco. They got a Sam's Club. They got a Dead Gone Ruby Tuesday. Hell, they got a Red Lobster. They got a Dave and Buster's. I actually have a mall that has people still going to it. What the hell do the people in this town do? And you drive a little bit further through the town, and there it is. It's a good-sized university. It's not Texas State, but it's a good-sized university. And you realize, oh, this town lives off of this university. These students come here, and every four years, there's a you know, there's a, they've cycled through a full crop, and they've got a new crop starting. Now, what this makes me think of is, back in the late 80s, early 90s, they started closing military installations across the United States that had worked pretty much the same way for those towns, and a lot of those towns pretty much dried up and blew away. I drove through towns in Arkansas that had thrived on tourism until the recession, and in just a few years, they went from what you could tell were really nice towns to having trees grow through the roofs of commercial buildings in their downtown area. And literally, there was no one there. No one cared because it was, well, it was southern Arkansas. Who cares about southern Arkansas? That's about to repeat itself because of the, the shift in education across the entire country. So you have pension funds. One, there's no more teachers funding them in the Ponzi scheme that will crumble, highly leveraged into a stock market that's going to go down, highly leveraged into international markets, they're going to get hurt worse than ours. And that's at the university and the, the, the elementary and high school level. Plus you've got towns that are about to crumble as the universities they've lived on go away. Which will bring us to real estate, because this is all tied together. So we already know that we have... Rents plummeting in Los Angeles. Rents plummeting in San Francisco. Rents plummeting in New York. Rents plummeting in Seattle. Mostly driven by tech workers who have now started working from home. About 13% of the workforce has started to work from home. Many of them are never going back to the office. Companies that weren't quite sure about how this work from home thing would work found out that the good employees still did good work at home. They still did everything they were asked to do. And it costs a lot less overhead, and those employees are happier. So they've said, you know what? You can just keep doing this now. And they're going to close down entire offices. Or they're going to say, I know what we'll do. We have this big building. We'll move everybody that still comes into one floor, and we'll rent out the other floors. Except if everybody else is doing that, who are you going to rent them to? Some billionaire that wants to convert a whole floor of a office building into a condo? How many of those are that go around? I don't know, but I know it's not a lot of them. So you're going to have a commercial real estate implosion. At the same time, you have an implosion in residential real estate in these major cities as people move out into the suburbs and further out into the country. In many cases, get the hell out of the states altogether. New York has an exodus. They've had an exodus, but COVID is killing the dying, and I don't mean people. And the exodus has accelerated massively. New Yorkers are leaving in droves, not just the city, but the state. Because why stay if I don't have to? 
there's all kinds of places in New York that we think of as being you know upstate or whatever that are actually pretty big metro areas. And people live there, and there's a lot of tech in that center, a tech in those areas. Well, why am I paying New York taxes? Why am I dealing with all New York's bullshit? If I can still work for this company and live in South Carolina or Georgia or Florida, so they're leaving. So you've got an exodus that was already happening. You've got an exodus from major cities that was already happening. Now we'll just throw a little bit of riots on top of it and prove to the people that live in those cities that their government doesn't give the square root of F all about them, and they will literally let rioters burn down your homes and burn down your businesses and not do anything at all. They won't do anything at all to protect you and your property. So now those people leave. And pretty soon your most productive people leave all your major cities, i.e. walk to freedom, which is, again, this is not new. I've been talking about this a long time. It's just accelerating. Amid massive job losses, amid a collapse of the current model of the education system, one fueling the other. And gee, how many people that are landlords make their living in college towns and they know that they have renters and a good underlying support of the rental market because all those college students that have to have some place to live that have a little bit too much money for mom and dad to live in the dorms. You see how that works? It all ties together. And then the last one for today is retail sales. Nothing has exploded on the stock market more than Amazon.com. <clears throat> we know that. And we know it's because they have sold and delivered more merchandise and made more money this year than they have ever dreamed about making. I think Jeff Bezos went, what? How much money? Really? Well, let's keep going. Every sale that Amazon makes is one that retail outlets don't make. And I'm not talking about mom and pop here. The mom and pop stores um, have been hit really hard by COVID because of the inability to open. But mom and pop retail has been either thriving or dying, depending on how good mom and pop are, since the 80s. Amazon is not what put an end to mom and pop. Walmart put an end to mom and pop. Kmart put an end to mom and pop. Lowe's put an end to mom and pop. Home Depot put an end to mom and pop. Kohl's put an end to mom and pop. Macy's put an end to mom and pop. You want me to keep going? Okay, stop blaming Amazon for the shift that happened in 1985 when Jeff Bezos was still chasing hookers or something. Okay? Don't do it. Don't think you can place the blame on Amazon for the Center Supply hardware store in Minersville, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, going under. It was already screwed the day that that area of Pennsylvania decided it was okay for Walmart to come to town. Amazon is hurting the Walmarts. That's who they're hurting, that retail segment. Well, friends and neighbors, that retail segment employs a shitload of people. But there's still times when I'd rather go to retail than online because I need it now, not tomorrow. Even though tomorrow's pretty amazing, I need it now. I'm in the middle of a job, and I need this shit, so I'll go to Lowe's, or I'll go to Home Depot, or I'll go to Walmart, because i got to do this now. I need this now. My freaking pipe broke, and I need a fitting, and I don't have to have that fitting, and water is spraying out, and I shut off the main, and until I turn it back, until I put it in there, I don't have water. So I need it now. So there'll be a place for retail. 
But what is retail going to do as it gets squeezed harder and harder? It's going to cut expense. What's the easiest way for retail to cut expense? Cut headcount. How do we do that? With automation, which was already coming. So then you're going to see the largest employer of people that are not even moderately skilled is retail. That is the largest employer of non-even moderately skilled individuals. I'm not saying everybody that works at Walmart or Target or Kohl's is unskilled. But the job they do, like cashiers, stocking shelves, doesn't require any real skill. Managerial jobs in those positions actually require some level of some skill. But you do not have to have any real skill to run a cash register. You can claim that you do. I know there's certainly people that have more skill at it than others, but I know some people, people in my family, who are cashiers. They're not skilled. They'll never be skilled. They're the kind of people that can't be skilled. They don't have the capacity for skill, either because they don't either have the intellectual capacity or they don't have enough drive, desire, and willingness to put in the effort to become skilled at something. They don't want to be. They want to show up somewhere, count the hours, get a paycheck, and go home. They'll bitch about it, but it's what they really want to do, which is why, in the case of my sister, 43 years old, all she's ever done in her life is run a cash register. That's why. That's why she's done that her whole life, because she doesn't have the desire, drive, and frankly, as much as I love her, the ability to do much more. So what happens to all those people when that giant employment sector gets cut in half. And the answer is, they become unemployed. And they become unemployed in two to three years versus ten years. And what do they all do? They live in houses, which is the real estate market. Many of them have children who, even though they were living this kind of mediocre life, because it's not just that kind of retail, there's all kinds of these mid-level jobs They're going to get automated out of existence. The one thing they did do is they made enough money to raise their kids and send them off to college because the kids could borrow money to go to college, which also fueled the economy and created skilled workers out of unskilled families, i.e., I want my children to have opportunities that I didn't. But what happens now when that kid can go to school for a fraction of the cost and not leave home? Well, that kind of causes that whole real estate problem through the... See how this all is connected? You had ten years to deal with this, America. Now you have two to three. And on top of it, we have the hysterical response to a virus that is a problem, but is nowhere near the bubonic plague that they have tr turned it into. They have made people so live in fear that people who have had this illness with hardly any symptoms have had near-psychotic breakdowns, as I brought to you yesterday. And in this case, if we weren't doing all this other stuff, just so you're totally clear on this, COVID would not be a distraction. It would be the problem. See, COVID could be the problem. But by self-inflicting these wounds, we have made it the distraction. It's a club. And the club can hurt you. When you get hit in the head with a club, it hurts. But the arm swinging the club is the problem. COVID is not the arm. The arm swinging the club is the people in charge 
And as always, as much as I love to kick politicians in the head, it's not really the politicians doing it, ladies and gentlemen. It isn't. It is the oligarchs. It is the technocrats. I had this talk with Doc Bones while we were on vacation. He was trying to explain to me how the world would end if Joe Biden became our president, and I'm certainly not looking forward to President Biden if it can and does happen. But I held up my phone. I said, if you think that that's the reason we hate each other, if you think that's the reason that we are divided, if you think that the reason America hates each other more today is Biden and Trump, or Hillary and Trump, then you don't understand this box. This box, I'm not a biblical person, but I quote the truth where I find it. I believe in a lot of religions, they can be prophetic because people have insight, even if the religion isn't necessarily viable. But you know that little line about receiving the mark of the beast in the right hand of the forehead? Where do most people hold that cell phone? In the right hand. And when they use that cell phone, where do they place it? Right in front of the forehead. And no man could buy or sell, save he received the mark of the beast. The technocrats, not Nero. The technocrats, not some politician who will rise up and lead the world. If you want an antichrist, the technocrats, the oligarchs, are the metaphorical antichrist in this situation. They're the ones that pull the strings. And it doesn't matter if Donald Trump is president, who says, don't lock down the country, damned if the country doesn't mostly lock down anyway, or Joe Biden, who's not even sure where he is, because the two people playing the game of chess on each side of the board are working together, you can change the pieces or how they move or the power that they have they'll still make the board look the way that they want it to look as they play the game. And you might believe that they're fighting each other, and you might believe the white queen and the black queen are really the two most powerful pieces on the board. But the chess pieces are not powerful at all. They're the distraction. The hands that move them, they're the problem. That's what you're about to see in our economy over the next two to three years. And I bring that to you not so you'll cower in fear and start making stupid decisions, but so that you'll take the message of preparedness seriously. In essence, I am telling you today, get your shit together. And that might seem harder now than it was a year ago. And it may be a little bit, but the reality is you can still get your hands on just about anything that you want in today's world, and things are still relatively cheap. And the good news about this Play your cards right. The whole world, once again, will go on sale. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, there's two ways to support us. One's become a member. And saving money is important. Well, you can save money by being a member because if you're going to be buying things in the world of preparedness, everything from plants and seeds to tactical stuff and the tactical to practical and everything in between and even some gifts and stuff like that. If you buy my membership for $50, you use the discounts on the money you're going to spend anyway, you'll save, say, $100, $200, some people tell me $500 a year using my discounts on $50. Bucks. That's profitable. You should always do things that are profitable.
Just saying. So to become a member, go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. But don't. You know me, I'm the honest guy. It's summertime. I know I just did a really long sale, a membership sale. It won't be as good as that. But I'm going to bring you a sale price on Monday. And I'm going to bring you a special announcement on Monday, too, about maybe, just maybe, I might sell a few lifetime memberships. Next up, though, the painless way to become a member, I mean become a member, to help support the show, do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today, our item of the day are a set of J.A. Hinkle's original version steak knives. I've had two sets of these for at least 10 years. I've had one of those two sets for before TSP, so more than 12 years. I love them. They're a great set of steak knives. I usually sell for about 40 bucks. They're on sale for $19.99. I brought them to you last month. A shitload of people bought them. No complaints. I'll just leave it at that. They are a great set of steak knives. If you have shitty steak knives, you pick it up and you don't like the way it cuts your steak, you pick it up and you try to use it and you feel the handle moving, and you want a good set of steak knives, get these. Again, I've had them for over a decade. They're fantastic. And when people come here to eat, they're like, oh, these are nice. Well, 20 bucks, and you can have a set, too. And you can always help us out, no matter what you're going to buy. Just start your shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to wrapping up with our song of the day. Now, given I came back in a short week, and John Adams prepares his song in, in weekly kind of themes for me off, and I decided I would pick my own two songs this week. So yesterday, I want to clear something up. I played You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet for you, and you... uh You guys heard me talking about people saying it's the end of TSP. And I guess the way I said it, a few people thought I was saying I was quitting, that that was the last episode. And that maybe I'd go off with the Goose Group thing, which you know I'm going to tell you a lot about that on Monday. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that here in just a second. But uh, no, no. I was talking about how people always say, when I say controversial things, when I push the envelope, it's the end of TSP. And I've heard it for 12 years. And all we've done has gotten bigger and better and more people listening to us. And when I said he ain't seen nothing yet, guys, that's what I was talking about. TSP is just getting started 12 years into it. Uh, on the Goose Group, you guys really, I want you to check out a little website called UnloosedTheGoose.com. It's not really ready for prime time yet, but it will be by next week. The Goose Group is coming. We are coming, we are coming, we are coming. We do not seek to be alone. We just seek to be left alone. And I and this team are going to do some awesome stuff. And I have a little intro uh, episodes available there now. We're already in Stitcher Radio. We should be in iTunes by, by the weekend, I would assume. We're, we've applied for that. And uh, Unloose the Goose is coming at UnlooseTheGoose.com. And if you were on the Daily Mail, you'd know more about that, so you should be on the Daily Mail. All right, so the song of the day today, though. I gave you this really dark, gloomy picture of the future, didn't I? Guess what? Like I said at the end of yesterday's show, I'm done going on and on trying to convince you to not freak out about COVID. At this point, you've made your decision. You're going to do what you're going to do. We're going back 100% to what this show's always been about, getting shit done, including in the middle of a storm, whether it's a financial storm or an actual storm. We get you done. We don't sit around. We stand. That's the name of the song. It's by Rascal Flatts. It's called Stand. It's a very motivational, inspirational song about hard times, about getting through hard times. And in the end, you stand. And it makes me think way back when the show had, was pretty much still a baby. And I did an episode, and I said, when it came to the people that think they're in charge, they are the people that run things, but they're not in charge of you unless you, unless you abdicate your power to them. 
And they, this includes the politicians and the oligarchs. You can stand or you can kneel, but you cannot do both. And I said, will you stand or will you kneel before these people who think they are entitled to power over you and your life? I guarantee you, anybody that remembers that, that's still here, you're standing. And you never once And I'll say the word some of you don't like. I'm sorry, because it's, it's called for right now. You never once fucking kneeled before these sons of bitches. Well, adversity comes in the form of people who wish to take from you, and it comes in the form of circumstances that seek to beat you down. Stand or kneel. I suggest you stand. Wipe your hands. 